As we continue in this stewardship season, in fact, in the second of our three Sundays, particularly focusing on our bicentennial Thanksgiving season of stewardship, we turn to God's word first in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49, and then we'll be turning to the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, his second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 17 and reading through the first couple of verses of chapter 6. So let's pray together. Oh Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we'll be picking up in the midst of the second of the four servant prophecies that are given in this segment of Isaiah chapter 40 through uh, 55. This, this one is in Isaiah 49, and we're picking up at verse 5. As the servant speaks, now we have the servant speaking in the midst of the great celebration of the servant prophecies. Now the servant is going to speak in this second servant prophecy. Picking up at verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant. Now the servant is speaking. There's going to be a dialogue here between the servant or the son and the father. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of Yahweh, Jehovah, and my God has become my strength. He says, okay, so now you have the Father speaking, Yahweh is going to speak, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Another transition here, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. 
And then to 2 Corinthians, picking up at chapter 5, verse 17. As Paul talks about our calling, our mission as the Christian church, as Christians together, and moves all the way, of course, to his famous declaration in response to the second servant song in Isaiah 49. Let's read through this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. And then Paul goes to this, claiming the day prophesied in Isaiah 49, working together with him then, we appeal to you to receive the grace of God not in vain. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Every time I run a race, it's magic. Every time I run a race, it's magic. I'm quoting from one of my favorite athletes, one of my favorite world-class athletes, uh, Julia Hawkins. You know Julia Hawkins? You may know her by her nickname, Julia Hurricane Hawkins. Does that ring a bell? Julia Hurricane Hawkins. Um, I love her plans. I love the way she plans and follows through, don't you? Julia Hawkins, Hurricane Hawkins, she plans over the last couple years to hone her running skills and to establish a new world record in the 100 meter dash. And you know what? She's an example of making a plan, committing to the plan, following through with the plan. Last Saturday, she did so. She established the world record in the 100-meter dash. I, that's phenomenal, isn't it? What did you do last week? I mean, really, you know. Uh, hey, uh, she put a fresh flower in her hair. And to the screams of adulation, you know, and cheers of her um, adoring fans, she set the world record in the 100-meter dash for women who are 105 years old or older. She's just turning 106, and she established that. New what, by the way, some of you, like, are y'all training to beat that record when you were 105, 106? 
I love her planning. Now, of course, you know, hey, she used to be fast, or she's not as fast right now. This is not a great time in the 100, but hey, for 105, going on 106-year-old, pretty good. But you know, back when she was young, I mean, like really young, back in 2017, when she was like 102, going on 103, man, she had a great time. She established the world record in 2017 for women in the age group of 100 to 105. I love her plan, I love her tenacity, and I love what she says, this LSU graduate retired school teacher who still lives in Louisiana and says, you know, when you get to be my age or when you get to retirement even, she says, it's really important to have passions and plans to act on your passions. She says she doesn't know she's a believer, She's a strong believer, as it won't surprise you. She doesn't know exactly why God hasn't called her home yet, but she figures it's her calling as a disciple and as a steward to live every day well and to make a difference in the world. What about you? Uh, you probably, you know, I, I mentioned I love her plans. You've probably already guessed my plan as a, as a Mississippi State football fan. I'm trying to figure out if she used all her years of eligibility when she was at LSU uh, in, in sports because we're going to have a tryout for a new kicker, and I'm thinking maybe Hurricane Hawkins may be our next kicker. I don't know. She's, she's really focused. I like that focus. Planning. We're talking a little bit about planning today as we're in the midst of this stewardship season, which of course invites us, and God always invites us to look ahead. In stewardship season, we're giving thanks in our current year, looking ahead to a new year. That may be intimidating to some of us, but you know what, if you're a believer, you're hopeful and excited about the year ahead, right? Because God is gonna do amazing things. Planning, um, Michael Hyatt, a Christian background, you know, he used to work for Nelson Publishers. Michael Hyatt, life coach, says, most people spend more time planning their vacations than they do planning their life. You know, I know a lot of people who are all the time planning for this or that trip or whatever, and it's amazing how many trips <laughs> and how many activities some people go on, but they're not really planning their life much. As you can see in the sermon notes, I opened up with this and I've given you a little bit of room. You can expand on it if you'd like to. What are my plans? In other words, what are your plans? You can respond to the sermon notes on this. If you need a copy, just contact us if you're online and can't retrieve this on the website. My plans for my faith. In other words, what are your plans for your faith right now? What are you planning? What's your game plan for this week? You know, when a when a football team, a basketball team, or certainly people who manage our national economy go into the week without really any clear or coherent plan, it doesn't turn out really well, does it? Uh, what's your plan for your faith? What's your plan for your character development this week? Parents, what's your plan to help your children develop faith and character this week? Uh, what's your plan for giving this week and next year? If you don't have a plan, <laughs> it's probably not going to fall out of the sky, is it? You pray for it, pray for God's inspiration, but God expects us to follow through with planning. What's your plan for your life? Or catch this, 
what's your plan for eternal life? <laughs> that puts stewardship season and all of our faith responses to God in perspective, doesn't it? Now, when you think about planning, I, I noted a couple of questions for you on your notes, and let me just go through these here for a minute or two. Um, basic question number one would be, am I committed to a plan? And then question number two, we'll come back to it. What's the quality, character, and goal of my plan? First of all, am I even committed to a plan? And then what's the character, quality, and goal of my plan? So basic question number one, am I committed? In other words, are we just talking about at best, well, maybe wishful thinking? At least I'm not procrastinating, but I'm kind of sitting around saying, I sure would like that to happen. I sure would like to grow, but, but am I committed to it? Am I committed to it about at the level of some people making New Year's resolutions? I'm gonna get really healthy. I'm gonna be really good this year. And by January 15th, it's gone. Are we talking about that level of commitment? Are we talking about a real commitment? Jesus, it turns out, in the Bible talks a lot. The New Testament gospels record this a lot. Jesus is really calling us to committed discipleship and to giving, committed giving, and to committed putting it all out on the line for him. He does this in a number of teachings, but one that really caught my attention and I was reminded of when I thought about planning was in Luke chapter 14, picking up at verse 27, Jesus has this conversation about what it means to be one of his believers and disciples. And he says this, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, let me repeat that. I'm quoting from Jesus, the Lord. He says, if you don't, if you don't bear your own cross and follow him, you can't be his disciple. You're just playing a game calling yourself a Christian. And then he goes on and gives these examples about planning. He goes on and he says this, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, in other words, of building the tower, whether he has enough, in other words, funds and materials to complete it or not. Otherwise, Jesus goes on and says, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish the building, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. You see how important Jesus says a, a plan and a commitment to a plan is? And what he says is, you're basically, if you're calling yourself a Christian, but not following through in the way you serve and witness and give and reach out to the world, if you're not doing that, you're violating the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And in fact, you're an obvious public fool because you claim to be a Christian, but you didn't live as a Christian. So Jesus is using this parable as a way to apply this. What does it mean to follow him? Take up your cross and follow him. And he goes on with another one. He says, um, or, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, 
He'll send out a delegation and ask for terms of peace. In other words, as Christians, we're supposed to be wise instead of foolish and follow through with what the plan is and be committed to it. And he goes on and says this, so therefore, Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then he gives this little parable about salt that he actually makes much more blunt in our reading in Luke than is obvious in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to this. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no use either for the soil or for any of y'all in farming or earthwork. Listen to this. This is Jesus now. This is really earthy talk. Jesus says, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. That's Luke 14, verse 35. Then he goes on and says this, it is thrown away. He who has ears, Jesus says, let him hear. In other words, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but don't actually follow him and live and act and speak and give and serve boldly all in, you belong in the manure pile. I'm not saying that, Jesus just did. So basic question number one, am I committed? Question number two, what's the quality, character, and goal of my plan? I can be a serial killer or a radical terrorist and have a plan, but it's probably not a good plan. So in other words, it's not just an issue of commitment. There are a lot of people who committed to really bad things. <laughs> what is the quality, character, and goal of my plan. And this brings us back to what we're talking about, you know, during stewardship season, God's biblical harvest law and principles. And, and that goes back to this, the bottom line is this, what I plant and nurture, I will reap. Let me repeat that. What I plant and nurture, I will reap. Parents, are you hearing me? What I plant and nurture, I will reap. As Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. Jesus says this, Luke 6, 38. In, in the same standard or measure in which you give, God will give back to you, ultimately in eternity. I mean, this is like, this is a, a basic principle that Jesus gives us. During this season, it occurred to me, I don't know, I actually haven't looked at this in a while, um, and some of this information was new to me, but I just decided, look, it's important to look to our leaders, at least for point of reference, if not for guidance. Uh, what do presidents give? As I'm thinking about giving during this stewardship season. Well, Jimmy Carter in recent history is the most famous for a combination of some pretty significant tithing to a local church, other charitable giving, and a lot of charitable service. You run all the way through. The Clintons set up their own foundation and gave pretty substantially to their own foundation. Um, you go through George W. Bush, who was a famous church member Christian, not kind of in general theory, but and, and was famous for actually recordable tithes to his local church. That's, that's classic, isn't it? A, a president who actually gives to a church substantially. And... Um, Subsequent presidents, President Obama famously uh, gave all of his Nobel Prize funds to charitable causes, including to disabled veterans, very laudable. Um, 
not so much on the records of more recent presidents, but I did note that um, Joe Biden, when he ran for vice president in 2008, his average giving in the several years before that for all charitable giving was about $650 a year charitable giving. I was kind of stunned by that information. But, but then in more recent years, as he prepared to run for president in, in 2020, his charitable giving and his and Jill's had gone up substantially, up around $30,000, $31,000 a year to various charitable giving. Well, what about church, you might ask? Um, $1,000 a year Joe Biden gives to his local Catholic parish now, his income, at least reported income, is in the range of over $625,000 a year, $1,000 a year to his local St. Joseph's Parish. But this is interesting. I don't know if you knew this. Jill is actually a PCUSA Presbyterian. Did y'all know that? And so the, the, the household gives $1,500 a year to the Westminster uh, Presbyterian PCUSA Church in Wilmington, uh, Delaware. As we can talk about, leaders, let's talk about groups or states. Uh, I recently seen a report and I went back and checked this and yeah, sure enough, the Wallet Hub survey of states population generosity per capita uh, in 2020, Mississippi, I'm sad to say, is 43rd of the 50 states in charitable giving. Not real good, right? Now, I know folks around here, I know you all, by the way, I can tell you because God has really blessed this church, a lot of faithful, generous folks, but um, our state's not looking really great in comparison to other states. So we may want to be light and inspiration to other people in our community and in our state. And I was thinking about this. Well, maybe this is a South-North thing. No, sure enough, Georgia ranks second in charitable giving. And you can say, well, hey, they got Atlanta, all this, that, and the other thing. Well, okay, Arkansas ranks 10th. Arkansas ranks 10th in charitable giving. Mississippi, 43rd. Alabama? 23rd. All this kind of brings us back to, fortunately, we don't have to rely on our generosity, right, for our salvation. In fact, that's the gospel. The gospel comes from God's generosity. I love that emphasis in the family devotional guide. We can thank God for his plan, and that's what we're doing today, thanking God for his generous plan of saving grace. So as you can see in the sermon notes too, if you're following along with those, let's go to number one. I wanna invite you today by God's word and by God's grace to thank God for revealing his gospel plan 700 years before Christ. Isn't that amazing? 700 years before Christ in the first New Testament. Now you can go back and get more information if you go back and check out the video that we posted of this past Wednesday night's Bible study. I went into this a lot more extensively in the second half of that wrap up of the Old Testament. But, but just a few notes on this. It is just amazing to think about it. As I said early in this series on Isaiah, Isaiah is commonly called the fifth gospel. In other words, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Isaiah is the fifth gospel. But as I said at the beginning of this series, I would refer to Isaiah as the first of the five gospels. So Isaiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But, but then it struck me, and this is what we were, it's kind of an interesting insight as we looked at this Wednesday night, that Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 is really the first New Testament. Let me repeat that. Isaiah chapters 40 through 66 is really the first New Testament. 
and it's 700 years before Jesus actually comes. Because as, as we said, and again, more detail in the Wednesday night study, of course, but just, just framing this out. So there are how many books in the New Testament? 27, right? How many chapters from Isaiah 40 at this key turning point in the book of Isaiah through 66? 27. Is that by accident? What do you think? Now, the chapters obviously are later imposed, but they pretty much frame out the flow of Isaiah. So you have these 27 segments of development that relate to the fact that, hey, you get to the New Testament, there are 27 books. And, and really, as we said on Wednesday night, you frame it out and there's three groups of nine chapters. The, 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 the triad of Ennead, in other words. Um, so in other words, you've got Isaiah 40, through 48, Isaiah 49 through 57, and then Isaiah 58 through 66. And as we said, it's really as close as you get in the entire Old Testament to a theology proper. In the same way, the book of Romans is the closest you get to a theology proper in the New Testament. Because we move from the first segment of the first nine chapters being focused heavily on God the Father and Yahweh, Jehovah, as the redeemer of Israel who promises he's going to redeem his people and goes all the way through his covenant promises, right? Remember, Isaiah 40 through 48. And then we get the action plan moved into full force in Isaiah 49 through 57, centering on the fact that the servant is God's son and that the gospel plan for redemption of Israel turns out to be to the entire world. The New Testament fully opens up, and then we focus on, well, what's at the very middle of Isaiah 49 through 57? The cross, right? Isaiah 52 and 53, Jesus dies on the cross for our sin, fourth servant song, okay? And, and then rises again to see light, fourth servant song, Isaiah chapter 53. And then we move on to the emphasis in Isaiah, uh, the final segment of the nine chapters, 58 through 66. And it's just, it's just kind of amazing, you know, when you, when you see this, that the emphasis is on, okay, so we've had the Father and the Son. What would come next? The Holy Spirit. And, and what does the servant himself say in Isaiah 60 and 61? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And all of a sudden, the emphasis is on sanctifying a people unto God. So in other words, we've had the justification in the second of the three segments, in the middle there, with the cross and the atonement. And then we move to sanctification and glorification of God's people and of God's people as the new Zion. And for the new heaven and the new earth, which the Holy Spirit is ushering in. So in other words, as we said Wednesday night, this pretty much runs us all the way from the beginning of Matthew, all the way through the prophecies of Revelation, ending with the new heaven and the new earth, right? And the new Zion. So it's incredible, this plan that God gave through Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was even born, and obviously way in advance of the new heaven and the new earth in Isaiah. It's just an amazing plan. So I want to invite you to thank God for the power of his plan. Number two, let's thank God that he gave Jesus the mission that he gave Jesus, not just to, as the Messiah of Israel, to redeem Israel and save Israel, but to bring salvation to Gentiles too. Most of us here 
online probably, and definitely I can tell you because I'm looking at the group here in the sanctuary, most of you are Gentiles, not Jews. Pretty much almost all of you, almost all of you, not quite, are Gentiles, not Jews. And you know what the plan is in Isaiah 40 through 66, it opens up salvation to Gentiles. That's what God's saying in this pivotal passage that we read from Isaiah 49. Look at this, Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now the Lord says, this is Jesus, or the servant speaking, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back, that's, that's Israel, that's Jewish people, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. In other words, he's sending me as the Messiah of Israel, that's verse 5. But then listen to verse 6. This is what the Father says to the Son, verse 6. It is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Here's the new, the, the full gospel here. I will make you as a light for the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. That turns out to be the plan. What a great plan. Anybody excited that you're saved by grace through Jesus Christ, extending the mission to you as a Gentile? Yeah, this is it right here, right? Isaiah 49, 6. And then it goes on. And by the way, this, this is, kind of picks up on what was already pre-prophesied, I guess I would say, back in the first servant song in Isaiah 42, 6. But then moving on to 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. And then notice this, the prophecy of the cross. Already when we get to the second of the three segments of Isaiah 40 through 66, the cross is appearing, right? Listen to this, listen to this. Verse seven, thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel, his holy one, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. In other words, your own people, the Jews, are gonna reject you. This is right there, 49.7, y'all see this? Right at the pivot point of the New Testament in Isaiah 40 through 66. One deeply despised, abhorred, by the nation, the servant of rulers. But then listen to this. This is all the way to the end. Listen. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. In other words, you were rejected and abhorred, but everyone's going to end up bowing down to you. God's already showing Isaiah this, and Isaiah recorded as Isaiah 49, 7. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Awesome. And then number three, thank Jesus for perfectly fulfilling the plan and giving us, giving us the day of salvation now. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. I want you to understand this. In the servant prophecy, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant. In other words, Jesus himself is the New Testament. Y'all understand this? Jesus himself, in himself, is the covenant of salvation. I will give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion desolate heritages. So here's what Paul says on this. Do not receive God's grace in vain. I mean, you want to talk about a manure pile issue. That's really a manure. To actually receive the gospel, but not act on it. So Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1, 6, chapter 6, 1 and 2. He's claiming Isaiah 49 and saying it's now here. Working together with him then, we appeal to you 
not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For he says, in a favorable time, I listen to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Now, then this is Paul in the second part of verse 2. Look at what he's saying. Two things. Behold, now is the favorable time. And again, let me repeat, Paul says, behold, now is the day of salvation. In other words, Paul says, God is handing you the whole plan, Christian, and you better act on it. Otherwise, you will have received the gospel in vain. So we urge you, brothers and sisters, Paul says, act on it. Now is the day of salvation. Throw yourself fully into the plan and live glorifying God and bringing his salvation to others. Worship, serve, give. And again, back to the harvest plan. You have to understand what Paul is saying here. Timeliness is key to the harvesting and the planting. Okay? If I don't plant at the right time, what kind of harvest am I going to reap? Farmers? By the way, if I never plant at all, if I never give at all, <laughs> what kind of harvest? There's no harvest at all. Okay. So receive the day of your salvation and act on it. This is what Paul is saying. This is what God's word is saying through 2 Corinthians. Receive the day of your salvation. Act on it in a timely way. Be reconciled to Christ. Join his church mission and thank God for planning and blessing FPC. A final note on planning. Uh, not only as we give, and of course we have this response with the pledges today, but I also wanna remind you, um, hey, in former generations, folks thought about planning to give to the Lord as they also joined the church triumphant. This church is blessed with some funds that date back, you know, 75, 100 years to people who thought like that. More recently, I shared with you, just a few years ago, right after I came here, Frank Jackson, who's gone on to the church triumphant, gave a house, and we used a fund that had been built up from the proceeds of a gift of an extra house that he had to pay for almost half of that pay down of the debt that had been an albatross around our neck for more than 15 years. And then Friday, Friday afternoon, John Scott gave me a call and wanted to stop by. And he stopped by the office and he told me, you know, Roy Scott, Dr. Roy Scott, who came to the Lord just a few years before he died, I baptized him here at this font just a few years ago when he was about 90 years old. Roy had wanted to make sure that his estate planned for a gift for God through this church. And so John was telling me, that was in his estate planning and it's gonna happen. And I said to John, I said, you know, people in former generations thought like that. Most people nowadays don't think like that. They're just not planning or, you know, I don't know what's happening. But anyway, it was an encouragement. And God has blessed our church for 200 years through stewards like that. And, and maybe this is a foretaste of new generations of generous and committed stewards as we look ahead to the next 200 years. So let's rejoice in that and give thanks for God's plan for this church. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come before you today, may all glory, honor, and indeed the future be unto you. In your name we pray. Amen.